Okay, Coach, the 2019 regular season opens tonight. What do you think of the initial group of 53 players you're taking into the start of this season? I really like the group. I like the group from a talent standpoint, from a tangible standpoint, the pedigree of the men, uh, the depth and competition at most positions we've been able to, to formulate. Uh, I like all of those things, but I think the thing that I really like is, is the things you can't measure. Uh, the intangibles. I think this is a legitimately close group. I like the developing leadership. I like the fact that our young guys are legitimately humble and open to receive uh, leadership. I just got a good feel about some of those things that you can't measure. And and you know at the end of the day, those are the things that uh, really get you out of stadiums when it's good on good. What did they show you specifically during the team development stage? In that regard? Yes. You know, just a um, – First of all, I think it's a young guy's job to to make himself likable. Um, you, you start there. Um, the young player has got to make himself approachable, likable, uh, ask good questions, attentive, and things of that nature. And I think that goes a long way in terms of creating the environment. Uh, I think the legit humility of young men like Devin Bush and Benny Snell and others, man, has really uh, created an atmosphere where the veteran players like Vince Williams um, and James Conner want to help their growth and development. And so um, there's a lot of coaching going on, formal and informal. I think when we're doing that, we got a chance to accelerate the team development process. Rob Gronkowski is a Hall of Fame tight end in everybody's mind, and he retired during the offseason. You personally have been through the loss of Hall of Fame caliber players during your time here, Heinz Ward, Troy Polamalu being an example of two of those kinds of guys. How does a team or a coach approach the loss of player of that stature? I mean, is it just a matter of finding somebody else, putting them in and doing what you do, or do you kind of have to reshuffle the deck and – and reevaluate? The answer is both. Um, someone physically has to man the position, there's no doubt. Um, so you go out and you get the very best player you can, either through free agency or the draft or development of someone that's there. Uh, someone's got to play the position. But I think if you if you got a realistic level of expectations, what you also need is a redistribution of playmaking. The play's got to come from that person that you inserted into that spot, but also the play's got to come from others. Whoever's playing tight end for New England is going to be required to make a certain number of plays. But I imagine, particularly in those significant moments, that others are going to have to make plays in order to make up for the absence of such a significant person. And I think that's always the case when you start talking about replacing special people. There's someone that occupies a position, but there's also generally a redistribution of playmaking. When you were talking about the New England defense at your news conference on Tuesday, you said about them, up front they do a great job of collectively rushing, but they also do a great job of always individually rushing. What do you mean by that? they got certain players that they hire to do certain jobs. Uh, you know, I think Chase – uh, Winovich, their draft pick out of out of Michigan, he's that that edge flamethrower. And uh, when you got the type of continuity that they had, uh, you know, you see trends in terms of what they seek out personnel wise over the course of years. You know, the coach in Tennessee used to occupy the role for him that Chase occupies now. It was Nikovic after him. It was Chandler Jones after him. They've always got an edge flamethrower, if you will. There's always a you know an interior individual rusher, someone that they they like to match up on interior people. Uh, they just acquired Michael Bennett, for example. Uh, prior to Michael Bennett, it was a uh, 98 from last year that signed the free agent deal. I'm trying to think of his name. Trey Flowers. Flowers. He was the interior matchup guy. So they got guys that they identify that got certain traits that they're trying to get on certain people. And when they're not doing that, they are very good at their games. And the other people that are rushing are good at 
working collectively. This is what you said about Tom Brady uh, in terms of that you weren't interested in matching wits with him. You were more concerned about, quote, our level of communication, our readiness, our positioning, our eyes. What do you mean when you refer to our eyes? You know, we need to be looking at what we're supposed to look at. Um, That's how you get gaps or seams in the defense. Uh, you got a call that prescribes that everybody quarterback key. You got one guy not keying the quarterback. It creates potentially a, a void or space uh, that can be attacked. I think on the calls that require us to look at certain things, we got to be looking at those things, all 11 men, because with a guy with the talent and experience of Tom Brady, that's, that's where um, the results of the potential big plays happen. I think that's just overall the urgency that you got to teach young players about ball in the National Football League. Mistakes are magnified because of the quality of players and the experience of those players are different. Uh, in college, man, you can drop a coverage or miss an assignment, and it could be catastrophic. In the professional game, it will be catastrophic. When you train eyes, is that something that happens in the classroom? Or you can't rep that on the field because you're not going against Tom Brady. You certainly can in that – you know, whoever's representing Tom Brady, Mason Rudolph, if we're in coverages that prescribe we're zone or quarterback keyers, everybody needs to be eyes on him. Oftentimes that's why in practice I stand behind the scout team quarterback, for example, um, looking at positioning and leverage and eyes um, because those are the, the key catalysts for us to perform well. Um, everything that we're going to run in an effort to minimize him uh, has a prescribed leverage has a prescribed line of vision or eyes for each man or each component of the of the call, and uh, we got to be on our screws. In your mind, is tonight's game in any way a competition between you and Bill Belichick? I think whenever you step into a stadium, that's the case. Ultimately, it's played out on the scoreboard, and so uh, that's how I view it. But I think uh, strategy, um, utilization of people, management of games, Certainly. There, there's always a chess match, if you will, um, in terms of people that you're competing against. Uh, you've often talked about the importance of communication in a game like this one tonight. Uh, I'd like you to take me through a hypothetical example. Okay, so the defensive call comes in from the sideline to the player with the receiver in his helmet. Then what happens? Uh, he relays the call to the rest of the defense. Um, there are certain adjustments or leverages and things of that nature uh, relative to the call that's communicated prior to the snap is capable of changing based on pre-snap movement. You know when you play New England, there's a lot of pre-snap movement. They'll show you one look. They'll send somebody in motion. They'll empty the backfield. They'll bring somebody else back into the backfield. All of those things require communication and necessary adjustments, and then you play the down. Does does the guy who makes uh, relays the call to the rest of the group does he do all that checking, or are the other players responsible for knowing what's to do? I think when- central communicators in any defense are the, are the linebackers and the safeties. Those second and third level uh, middle of the field players, if you will, guys that are, are a hub of communications physically, but also just in terms of their roles. But physically, they're centrally located. They can talk to D linemen. They can talk to corners. The vast majority of that communication is distributed between linebackers and safety men, and the play caller, if you will, is just the guy that gets it all going. Now, does in the process of this, making the checks and all that, does the call change? Some calls are multiple calls. Some calls are, um, are capable of changing. Some calls are play it calls. Uh, it depends on the game planning, the circumstance. Sometimes what the offense is doing to us dictates that we change. Sometimes we go in with – 
you know, potentially two calls based on certain criteria. That's just the chess match element of football at this level. I think that's why those of us that love the game really love coaching and playing at this level because um, it's challenging. It's challenging intellectually. How is all of that altered if the offense is in no huddle? It's not the necessary pace of it. It's the potential pace of it. Um, just because the offense is in no huddle, it doesn't mean that they're going to be operating at an uncomfortable or a fast pace. But you better be prepared because there's a potential for that. And so it affects defenses in certain ways. It makes you make quicker decisions. It makes you get communications out. And then the ball might not snap, and then the offensive play might change. And then you might have to repeat process. I think the one thing that you think about when you think about no huddle is, is that keyword potential. It's potentially a pace change, but not definitively. You have to be prepared for it, but it's not an absolute. And so, you know, I think we all make good decisions when we comfortably work in that pace. I think when you turn the volume up on things and make people operate at pace, you get some revealing things about them. But I think that's why all offenses in today's game uh, have no huddle in some instances. They're trying to reduce a defense in some way. They're trying to gather information that gives them an opportunity to execute what they're executing. When that happens, when they're in hurry up, maybe or maybe not, but not in the huddle, uh, is the onus then on the coaches or who's ever making the call from the sideline, or is that more pressure on the guy who's receiving the call and, and then I, trying I to like figure it term, out? I like the term pressure. It's on all of us all the time. We're all responsible. The pace of play doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, we as coaches have to adjust and be ready. The players got to adjust. I'm not into assigning blame, like who is, who is under more pressure. No, we're all, we're all responsible. That's the nature of it. Players and coaches got to work together to address the challenges that are presented in stadium. You're all about providing your team with what it needs at any given point in time. What does the team need from you tonight? You know, I think that'll be revealed to me during the course of play. Oftentimes, uh, the circumstances that that unfold in games dictate that. I watch them. Obviously, this you have your antennas up when it's in the early portions of the season for things that you may not have your antennas up for later in the season, like fatigue. Uh, fatigue is an element of play. Um, first time out, man, nobody's played four quarters of football. Uh, so you might see rotations and things of that nature. Um, that you don't see later in the year. Um, So it's our job as coaches to be what they need us to be, me included. Um, I'll have my eyes and ears open, and and experience helps you there. Um, I've been in this situation a lot with teams and kind of, you know, got a got a protocol, if you will. Are you somewhat comfortable that by this time through this whole process that you're not going to be faced with a situation where it's too big for somebody? No, you're always going to be faced with <laughs> potential circumstances that, that you know, it's just, it just part of it. You learn about yourself. You learn about those that you work with uh, when you're in adverse circumstances. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's awesome about, about sports. I think that's why we, we, meaning all of us, love sports. Um, it challenges us in ways where we learn about ourselves and each other. Um, it brings the best or the worst out in us. I love that. Um, hopefully it doesn't get too big for somebody tonight, but it could. Um, it, it, that's just the nature of this thing. If it does, how would it manifest itself to you? It manifests itself in a lot of ways. People manage stress in a lot of ways. Some people internalize. Some people externalize. Some people lash out. Uh, some people shut down. Um, football is no different than life um, or jobs or relationships at home. Uh, people deal with 
adversity and stressful situations in different ways relative to their personality. And so um, there is no cookie-cutter way that it is revealed.